0: Well, let's, um, let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Acts, chapter one, and verse eight. Um, those of you that are coming in, or maybe people that haven't yet, there's a, there's a handout on the chair back there. And this is my summary of the whole book of Acts. So if you um, just want to, in one sitting really, uh, a compressed sort of summary of the book of Acts, this is the handout for you. This is a handout that you kind of want to bring with you that we're going to use as we go through this study. Online folks, we didn't leave you out. Um, if you go to the lesson we're doing tonight, lesson two, and you look, and you click on on the SLBC website um, next to the PowerPoint notes, I think it says uh, there's a PDF copy of this for you also. So this uh, tonight is part two of the introduction to Acts, <laughs> and we're going to start verse by verse through the book of Acts, probably next week. But before we um, dive into books here at Sugarland Bible Church, we like to take a lesson, sometimes two. To kind of uh, lay the foundation for the book, and this is what we would call the background issues, Um, some introductory issues that you really need to understand in order to better appreciate a book of the Bible. And so last time we started looking at about 14 background issues. If memory serves, we got through nine of them. And so we've got five more to cover tonight, and then once we have those finished, then we'll be ready to start moving through the book of Acts verse by verse. Now for those of you that weren't here last week, let me just do a brief review of the nine that we covered last time. And if you want more detail on these, I would encourage you to listen to the lesson from last week. But the first background issue is the title of the book, and by the way, you can look at these 14 issues for any book of the Bible. If you can sort of figure these things out before you study any book of the Bible, believe me, your ability to appreciate the particular book you're reading will grow exponentially But the first issue was the title of the book. (laughs) The title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles. Some of the earliest versions of the book of Acts that we have by way of copies. Um, That's the title that was given to the book. I told you last time that I wasn't crazy about the title. The title was created by man, not by God. God. So I've got my study Bible here, and it says the Acts of the Apostles up there, and the Holy Spirit didn't put that up there. Um, the, the study Bible folks put that on there. And the, the title is problematic, we said, because this really is not the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and the book is really not about the Apostles although they're mentioned. The the book really focuses on two apostles, Peter and Paul. But nevertheless, that's the title that most people know this book by. Um, The second background issue is authorship. And who wrote the book of Acts? A guy named Luke, who was a physician. And he wrote a prequel What's the prequel? Anybody know? The Gospel of Luke, so the book of Acts is the sequel. More on that in a a little bit. Um, The third issue we looked at was biography. You know, what do we know about this man named Luke who wrote the book of Acts? Luke um, was not one of the original 12 apostles. However, he was Paul's traveling companion. We know that because he will insert himself into the story about three times, three sections. We call those the we sections where Luke is writing the book of Acts and he's saying, Paul did this, Paul did that, Paul did this, Paul did that. Then all of a sudden we did this, we did that. We also know his occupation. What was his occupation? He was a physician. That's why there's a lot of medical terms in the book of Acts that we'll be talking about. And the majority view is that Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew. That's being challenged today by some. And there may be an argument that maybe the majority opinion is wrong on that. But nevertheless, as it currently exists... Um, Most people believe Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the Bible. So he wrote Luke and Acts as a Gentile. The fourth issue that we looked at was the place of writing. Uh, Where did Luke write the book of Acts from? Well, he probably wrote it on the go. Uh, That first bullet point up there, you'll see the we sections where Luke inserts himself into the story. There's a big we section in Acts 16, there's another one in Acts 20 and 21, and then there's another one in chapters 27 and 28. So he probably was with Paul when a lot of these events unfolded. He was with Paul in Caesarea. On the voyage to Rome, he was clearly with Paul at the end of the book of Acts in in Paul's uh, first Roman imprisonment because Luke there says, when we arrived in Rome, so he probably wrote some of the book in Caesarea, some of it on the way to Rome, some of it when he was with Paul in Rome in his first Roman imprisonment for two years And so there probably isn't like one place where he sat down and say, okay, I'm going to write the book of Acts today. It's probably a book that came into existence piecemeal um, as Luke was on the go with Paul. The recipient of the book, this is probably the most important issue, I think, to really appreciate the book Who was the book written to? Well, it was written to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and he's also mentioned in the prequel in Luke 1, verses 3 and 4, and it's in Luke 1, 3 and 4 is where we really learn a lot about Theophilus. So Luke, at the very beginning of his gospel, mentions Theophilus. And he says, it seemed fitting, Luke 1, verse 3, for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now that title, most excellent Theophilus, is used two other times in the book of Acts to describe Roman officials. It's used of a guy named Felix and a guy named Festus uh, later on in the book of Acts. And so we believe that Theophilus, Luke is calling Theophilus by that title because he was a Roman official. If Theophilus was a Roman official, he was probably a Gentile. And it says in verse 4 of Luke chapter 1 that you may know, Theophilus, the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So Luke is not trying to evangelize Theophilus. You get the impression that Theophilus is already a believer. How did Theophilus become a believer? He probably became a believer through the influence of Paul. In Rome, down the road. And Theophilus, whose name actually means, literally, lover of God. Theos, God, phileo, love. He was probably a a believer. He was probably a Gentile. He was probably a, a Roman official. He heard the gospel. He believed in it but he was probably entertaining doubts about his Christianity. The doubts probably related to the fact that Christianity seems so Jewish. There's such a Jewish emphasis uh, early in the book of Acts. There's such an early, uh, a, a Jewish emphasis in Matthew. And Theophilus is probably questioning whether the gospel is for him also because he's not a Jew. And so Luke, sensitive to that, as a Gentile, would write to Theophilus as a Gentile a book, actually two books, Luke the prequel, Acts the sequel, explaining to Theophilus that, yes, indeed, Theophilus, you are contemplated in the mind of God. And it was God's specific intent to reach you with the gospel. God worked sovereignly to reach you with the gospel. And here is the historical proof concerning how much God loves you. Let's start with the ministry of Jesus, which is for the whole world. And let's start with the ministry of the church that Jesus continued to do through the church after the ascension to reach the world. So the purpose then of the book of Acts is to present Theophilus with an orderly account. Um, Luke, as a physician, would understand detail. Um, if you have a physician that doesn't care about detail, you might want to find a new physician, right? Uh, someone that really knows how to... Uh, organize and get into details about things. It's just Luke is using his detailed ability here as a historian. So the purpose is to present Theophilus with an orderly account of the birth and the growth of the church so as to affirm him in what he has already believed. Because going back to Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Luke explains that the purpose of these two books is so that you Theophilists may know the truth about the things you've been taught. In other words, you don't have to doubt anymore that christian is Christianity for me or not because I'm a Gentile. so the the message of the book is, and this this is where you kind of step back and you're able to state a one-sentence definition of what the book is about. I think it was Howard Hendricks um, who went to teach at a church, and uh, he was a famous professor at Dallas Seminary for years and years and years. And he went to teach at a church, and uh, the pastor was absent, and they asked Howard Hendricks, uh, or Howard Hendricks asked the leadership, what do you want me to teach on? And they said, Teach on anything but the book of Ephesians. And he said, well, why, why don't you want to hear about the book of Ephesians? And he says, well, our pastor has been in the book of Ephesians for about five years. <laughs> and then Hendricks asked the leadership committee or the leadership of the church, well, what is the book of Ephesians about? And not a single one could give a, give, give an answer. Because um, this is what happens in modern Bible study: is you can get so into the weeds so fast, you know, you can strain at the leaves of the, you can strain at the veins on the leaves of the tree so intently that you forget what the forest looks like. It's like when I was playing basketball in high school, I got injured. And so they made me go up to the top of the bleachers to watch the games and the practice. And so I could see the whole floor. I wasn't just focused on my position. I could see everything. And so finally I understood the game of basketball because I could see everything rather than just being a player trying to fill my role. So in Bible study you have to do that. You have to step back and say, well, what what is this book about? So, you should be able to come up with a one de- a sentence definition of every book of the Bible you study. And then what you do is you figure out how do the parts relate to the whole. That's what this handout does for you. It won't tell you everything you need to know about the book of Acts, but it will tell you what the book is about, here are the key parts, and here's how the parts relate to the whole. And if you can't do that, or if a teacher is not leading you in that way, what you're stuck with at the end of the day is a bunch of pieces that are very important, but you don't know how they fit together. So a message statement will rescue you from, you know, knowing all this intricate stuff about Acts, but not knowing what it's about. So what is the book about? It's about the birth and the growth of the church how the church was born and how God matured the church in three ways, numerically, geographically, and ethnically. That's why as you go through the book of Acts, there are these numerical progress reports. The church is going to start with 120 people in Acts 1. And then you're going to get to Acts 2, and the number grows to 3,000. And you're going to keep moving through the book of Acts, and then you're going to see it grows to 5,000. And then it's going to make its way up north to the northern tip of Israel to Antioch, and it's going to say they were teaching the church in considerable numbers. So those numbers are there to show you how God didn't just birth the church but grew it, And then geographically, by tracing the trajectory of the church all the way to Rome, probably where Theophilus was. And then ethnically, by showing how the church started off as sort of an offshoot of Judaism, but eventually developed into a group of people called the body of Christ from all nations of the earth, which would include Theophilus. So that's what's happening in the book of Acts. And Luke is tracing this history to affirm Theophilus and, and sort of uh, appease his doubts that maybe Christianity is not for him because it starts off so Jewish. So Luke's method as he's developing this is to record history. He records the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and then the ministry of the church in the book of Acts. He doesn't tell you every single thing that happened historically, so his history is selective. But he's grabbing historical events that would relate to ministering to Theophilus, who's dealing with doubts. So it's what we call history shaped around a purpose. So it's not like a like if you read a a, I don't know a Civil War book, you know, if it's supposed to be exhaustive, it's going to tell you everything there is to know about the Civil War. But that's not what the Book of Acts does. It doesn't tell you everything that happened in early Christianity. It it selectively grabs pieces that fit Luke's purpose in writing which is to minister to Theophilus. Luke's sources that he used to compile this history were obviously himself, because he was there for a lot of it. Paul, because he knew Paul. And then other people mentioned in the book of Acts. And when he put the prequel together, he wasn't there to see that, but he interviewed witnesses. He tells us that in Luke 1 verse 2. He probably interviewed Jesus' own mother, human mother, I would think, Mary. And then he had at his fingertips some legal records, and that's how we ended last time—the ruling at the the uh, Jerusalem Council, which I'll talk about in a second, and other legal things that happened. It looks like he's quoting trans, legal transcripts and things of that nature. And so these are all the sources that he used to compile his material. And, of course, we believe the Holy Spirit was using all of this activity to actually pin God's Word to us without error. So let us that's all review, believe it or not. And so let's pick it up with the 10th uh, or so. A background issue, and that has to do with the date. What exactly is the date of the book? Well, we would date the book around AD sixty to sixty-two. And rather than just memorize the date, um, I'd much rather you know why we date it there, rather than just saying, you know, giving you some some dogmatic thing to memorize. It's more important to understand why we get that date. Well, the book doesn't mention the events of A.D. 70. I mean, A.D. 70 was horrible. It's when the Romans came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And one million Jews lost their lives when that happened. And it's unthinkable that Luke wouldn't mention that. Because Luke is dealing with how Christianity sort of broke away from Judaism. And AD 70 was the final break. That's when the temple was destroyed, the city was burned, etc. And so because Luke doesn't mention that, he probably wrote before AD 70. Luke does not mention the first Roman persecution under Nero. So he probably wrote before that. And Paul is a big deal in the book of Acts, and yet Luke in Acts never mentions things that happened late in Paul's life, like his martyrdom. He doesn't mention Paul's second imprisonment. He doesn't mention Paul's activity between imprisonments. So he was thrown in Roman prison twice. And all the way through the book of Acts, Paul keeps saying, I'm going to appeal my case to Caesar. And Luke in the book of Acts doesn't even mention how that trial, I mean, how did that work out? Did it go in Paul's direction or not? I mean, in hindsight, we know it did, but Luke never says that. It gives you the outcome of the trial. So he probably wrote before the trial. So that pushes the, the date to a, at least pre AD sixty two. And when you look at Acts um, twenty eight verse thirty, because Luke was clearly there in the first Roman imprisonment, because in Acts twenty eight sixteen, Luke says when we, that's one of the we sections, entered Rome. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And then Acts 28 verse 30 says, He stayed, that's Paul, two full years in his own rented quarters, welcoming all who came to him. And then the book of Acts just stops at that point. So he arrived in Rome with Paul in the first Roman imprisonment in A.D. 60, And yet he doesn't mention the things that happened later on in Paul's life beginning in A.D. 62. And so probably a date of A.D. 60 to 62 um, is the best way to date the book of Acts. I think Luke is operating under the assumption that all roads lead to Rome. And he understands that once Paul gets the gospel to Rome, the gospel is going to go everywhere. Because the Roman, the, the, the Roman Empire, I should say, built Roman roads in the intertestamental period. They brought in what's called Pax Romana, Roman peace, and they also brought in these Roman roads. And they're doing this um, before Jesus was even born into our world. And so this was the hand of God preparing the world for the rapid transmission of the gospel. And Luke understands that because all roads lead to Rome, he doesn't have to keep tracing the development of the church everywhere it goes because it's understood that once it gets to Rome, it's going to go all over the known world because of Pax Romana and universal Roman roads. And that may be another reason why Luke, once you get to the end of Paul's or the beginning of Paul's first Roman imprisonment, Luke just stops writing. So it kind of ends strangely. It ends kind of abruptly. But if you understand that his purpose is to trace the progress of the church, and if you understand that all roads lead to Rome, you can kind of understand why once Paul got to Rome, and Luke recorded that in Acts 28, then there's nothing else to talk about because it's assumed that the gospel is going to go everywhere. So he couldn't have written after A.D. 62, and so probably a date of A.D. 60 to 62 is probably a pretty safe way to date the book of Acts. The 11th background issue is structure. And this is a big deal because when you're studying a big book of the Bible, this is 28 chapters. So it's fairly long. You want to have some kind of outline by which you can organize the book. I mean, at 28 chapters, how would you ever wrap your arms around something this big? And so having an outline that you can refer to helps you. Because when your pastor says turn to Acts 3 or your Bible study teacher says turn to Acts 3, you're saying to yourself, well, I don't know everything there is to know about Acts 3, but I know where it fits in the outline. And you can have a general idea of what's happening in Acts 3 just because you have a good outline. And so um, the outline is something that you want the Lord to reveal uh, in the book itself. So, when you go to the book of Revelation, <laughs> and you get to the very beginning of the book, just as an example, there's an outline right there in the book of Revelation. I know we're not studying the book of Revelation, but I'm just giving you an example of how the Holy Spirit does this. A lot of times he'll reveal the outline right at the beginning. And so you're reading through Revelation 1 verse 19, and you get to verse 19, and Jesus will say to John, by way of a vision, Therefore, write down the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after these things. And you say to yourself, well, there's the outline. I mean, what the Lord just did is outline the book of Revelation for you right at the beginning of the book. So when he says, write down the things that you have seen, that's chapter 1. The vision of the glorified Christ that John saw on the island of Patmos, off the coast of Asia Minor, in the Aegean Sea, right in that area, in AD 95, he saw a vision of Jesus and he wrote it down. Part two of the outline is write down the things which are, and that's part two of the outline. That's Revelation two and three. That's the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation two and three. And then he says write down the things that will take place after these things. And you get to Revelation chapter four, verse one where John is sort of caught up to heaven to see a futuristic vision. And he says, after these things. So that starts the futuristic section of the book, chapters 4 through 22. So um, you'll notice that the book of Revelation has an outline that's very clear. And that outline is revealed right at the very beginning of the book. Write down the things that you have seen. <clears throat> write down the things that are. And write down the things that will take place after these things. And so the Lord made it easy on us. He gave us an outline right at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Now having said all that, look at Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 8. Uh Jesus, speaking to the disciples before he ascended to heaven, gives you the outline. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remote parts of the earth. There's your outline of the book of Acts. Write down, the, uh, rather, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's part one of the book. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. That's part two of the book. And you will be my witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. That's part three of the book. So part one of the book is the church's witness, once it was born, in the city of Jerusalem. And that covers Acts 1-7, through is dealing with part one. But then Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Now where are Judea and Samaria? It's what the world community today calls the West Bank which is a name I don't like at all because it's not found in the Bible, but that's what they're talking about, Judea and Samaria. Um, to put it sort of into modern-day vernacular, Jerusalem is a city. Judea and Samaria would be, would be basically counties, larger areas outside the city of Jerusalem. So you have the city of Sugarland, then you have a larger area, Fort Bend County. It's the same kind of idea here. Uh, you have the city of Jerusalem, and then you have these outer regions near the city of Jerusalem called Judea and Samaria. Jesus said, "You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria." That's part two of the book. That's chapters eight through twelve. But then he said, you will also be my witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's when the church's witness leaves the borders of Israel entirely and ventures out out into Gentile territory. And that is chapters 13 through 28 of the book the church's witness to the remote parts of the earth, which is the largest section of the book that you can divide as follows. At the beginning of that section, Paul went outside the borders of Israel on his first missionary journey into southern Galatia and then back to the land of Israel. That's Acts 13 and 14 then the church has a problem because everywhere Paul went, it was the Jews in the synagogues that were rejecting the message. He would go into the synagogue in Jerusalem. He would try to share with them the gospel from Hebrew Bible that we call Old Testament. They would reject the message by and large. And Paul would say, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and he would go to the Gentiles, and he would gain this great following. And this happened in city after city after city that Paul went into in Gentile territory. And so you've got all these saved Gentiles now. And the church leadership still in Jerusalem has to figure out, what do we do with these people? Do we make them into Jews to join the church? And they have a big powwow about that called the First Jerusalem Council. It takes place in Acts chapter 15. They hear no audible voice from God on the matter. They see no vision, which is interesting because this is a book where God talks and there's lots of visions and things happening in the book. No vision from God, no audible voice. They have to reason from Old Testament they reason from the book of Amos that Gentiles are going to be full participants in the millennial kingdom. Amos nine, eleven through fifteen. And so the ruling of the Jerusalem Council is you know what, let's let all the Gentiles come into the church without converting to Judaism. Because the way it worked for fifteen hundred years, if you is if you want to walk with Yahweh, you've got to convert to Judaism. Ruth, the Moabitess, had to do that in the book of Ruth when she went back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She said, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Ruth became a convert to Judaism, what we call a proselyte. And what the church is trying to figure out in Acts 15 is does the same rules apply? Because now we're in the church age and we've got all these Gentiles getting saved. What, what in the world do we do with these people? And the church says, you know what? With the, you don't have to convert to Judaism to be a member of the church. And once that ruling was made, the church just took like a quantum leap forward ethnically. And you can see why Luke would include this to Theophilus, who's a Gentile, who's wondering if his non-Jewish status um, is somehow hindering his relationship to God. Luke says, no, it's not. Look at the ruling in the Jerusalem council, Acts 15. Then after that, Paul goes out on his second missionary journey. And this time he goes into Galatia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece, And he comes back, and then he goes out on his third missionary journey. And you can see the scriptures where these different missionary journeys took place. And he basically retraces the steps that he went on in missionary journey number two. And then he gets back, and then he takes what I call a fourth missionary journey, except the commentators never call it a fourth missionary journey, but it really was a missionary journey. Because Paul's ambition was always to get the gospel to Rome. And Paul was a pretty clever guy. He knew how to use the legal system to advance the cause of the gospel. And so when he was arrested by Rome, he kept saying over and over again, I'm a Roman citizen. He starts doing this in Philippi. I'm a Roman citizen. They flogged me. They violated my rights. Um, they're jailing me. One of my rights as a Roman citizen is I want a trial before Caesar. And where was Caesar located? In Rome. So Paul would go to these different areas and they would say, okay, we'll try you here, Paul. And he would say, no, I want to be tried before Caesar. Well, why do you keep insisting on that? Paul says, that's my right as a Roman citizen. And he kept insisting on it and insisting on it and insisting on it until he got the gospel to Rome. So he knew exactly what he was doing. He was using the legal system to advance the cause of the gospel. And he actually took missionary journey number four, as I call it, the trip to Rome, Acts 21 through 28, in chains. So I call it a fourth missionary journey. It's just most people don't call it that because he was put in chains this time. But he, in my view, volitionally put himself in chains. So you take that third section of the book and you've got missionary journey number one and then the Jerusalem Council and then missionary journey two, missionary journey number three, missionary journey number four, And then the book of Acts ends. So the book of Acts has these three parts. Part one, the church's ministry in Jerusalem. Part two, the church's ministry in Judea and Samaria. Part three, the church's ministry to the remote parts of the earth. Chapters 13 through 28. It's just that third section has five subparts to it. First missionary journey, Jerusalem Council, Second missionary journey, third missionary journey, trip to Rome that I call the fourth missionary journey. So that is kind of the big picture of the book of Acts. So you may not understand every little thing in every one of these sections, but when you're listening to a teacher and they say, turn to Acts 12, you can kind of you know, say, okay, well, here's the part of the outline where that fits, and I generally know what the teacher's going to be talking about because I've got a knowledge not just of the veins on the leaves of the tree, but I have a knowledge of the forest. You know, I've been injured, and I'm sitting on the top bleachers, and I'm looking at the game of basketball from the highest level down. Um, so this is why Howard Hendricks was frustrated with that church, and they, the people knew they couldn't articulate what the Book of Ephesians was about because they'd never gone through this discipline of going to the ten thousand foot level first before you get stuck in the weeds. So you can do this for every book of the Bible. Um, the scope of the book. You know when does it start and when does it end? Well. The first section of the book, Acts 1 through 7, took place, we think, from AD 33 to AD 34, which is a two year period. The second section of the book, the ministry in Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 through 12, took place from AD 35 to AD 48, which is a 13 year period. And then the journey to the remote parts of the earth, chapters 13 through 28, took place between A.D. 48 to A.D. 62, or a 14-year period. So part 1, 2 years. Part 2, 13 years. Part 3, 14 years. According to my old math, that adds up to 29 years. Um, So it took about 30 years For the contents of the book of Acts to unfold. And that's important to understand because there's a lot of action in the book of Acts. I mean, there's miracles, there's visions, there's hearing voices from God, there's missionary activity, and it kind of reads like, you know, one day they got up and did this, and the next day this happened, and the next day this happened. Well, that's not really how it happened. Luke is just giving you the high points over a 30-year period. And that's important to understand because a lot of times as Christians we read the book of Acts and we want God to move that fast in our life. Okay, Lord, you open this door today. What are you going to do tomorrow? And Christianity doesn't work like that. A lot of times it's the waiting game. And we think we've missed out on God because our lives are not moving as fast as the book of Acts is, not understanding that the book of Acts didn't move as fast as you think it moved in. I mean, it took 30 years uh, for this whole scenario you know, to unfold for Paul to finally get the gospel to Rome. So if you're reading the book of Acts and you're impatient with God because God isn't moving as fast as you think he should based on your reading of the book of Acts, maybe you should let God off the hook a little bit on that. Sometimes when God does things, it takes a while. I mean, we'll, we'll serve, what's that commercial? I'll serve, they'll serve no wine before it's time. I mean, it takes while, a while for something good to develop. And this is why one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience, right? Can you guys say that with me? Patience. Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. Um doesn't work that way. Um, well, some of the themes of the book of Acts. One of the major themes, and what, what I mean by a theme is a concept that keeps recurring as you move through the book. If you see something happening over and over again, that's a theme that's being traced. So one of the themes is the transition from Peter to Paul. The football is being handed off from Peter to Paul. Paul's ministry was just as legitimate as was Peter's. Now, why would Theophilus need to know that? Because Theophilus, a Gentile, probably received the gospel through Paul rather than Peter. And maybe he thought he had just gotten, you know, some kind of undervalued gospel. And Luke is explaining by recording history that what Paul did was just as authentic as Peter. Uh, Galatians 2, 7, and 8 says, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who worked effectively for Peter... In his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked with me also to the Gentiles. So Peter is the apostle to the Jew, the circumcised. Paul is the apostle to the uncircumcised or the Gentiles, which would include Theophilus. So as you move through the book, what you're going to see is a transition from Peter to Paul. This chart here um, divides the book from the first part where Peter is in ascendancy to the second part where Paul is in ascendancy. So the first part of the book is Acts 1 through 12. The second part of the book is Acts 13 through 28. In the first part of the book, Jerusalem is the center of the church. It's the headquarters of the church. In Acts 13-28, through the dominant influence of the church is no longer Jerusalem, but Antioch up north in Israel. And it's from Antioch that Paul will launch the three missionary journeys that I mentioned earlier. The dominant guy in the first part of the book is Peter. The dominant guy in the second part of the book is Paul. Um, The place... Of ministry in the first part of the book is Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria. The dominant ministry in the second part of the book is the remote parts of the earth, Gentile territory. The first part of the book, the outreach is Jewish to Jewish people. The second part of the book, the outreach is to the Gentiles. But what happens in the second part of the book which impacted Theophilus is just as legitimate as what happened in the first part of the book. Because Theophilus is probably questioning, he's a Gentile, is all of this stuff for him? And by juxtaposing these two apostles, Luke is showing that, yes, you, Theophilus, as a Gentile, were strategically contemplated in God's mind. Not necessarily through the ministry of Peter, but through the ministry of Paul, which is just as legitimate as the ministry to Peter. Now this chart here will help you as you you can refer to it as you move through the book because it shows you that the things that Paul does in the second part of the book have already been done by Peter. So Peter heals a man lame from birth in the first part of the book. Paul heals a man lame from birth in the second part of the book. Peter heals by his shadow in the first part of the book. Paul heals by a handkerchief in the second part of the book. Peter is so successful in his ministry that the Jews become jealous in the first part of the book. Well, in the second part of the book, Paul is so successful in his ministry that the Jews become jealous. Peter confronts a sorcerer in the first part of the book. Well, that's what Paul does in the second part of the book. Peter raises someone from the dead in the first part of the book. Well, that's what Paul does in the second part of the book. Because there's this weird story in there in Acts 20 about how Eutychus, Paul preached too long. Do you guys think I preached too long? I mean, Paul preached all night long. And Eutychus fell asleep. And he fell out of what we think is a two-story building. And he died. And Paul went down and wrote, raised him from the dead. Now, you, you realize some of the weirdest sermons have been preached on that? This is what happens when you fall asleep in church. You know, these kind of things. And... The the truth of the matter is, why is that story even there? It's juxtaposing or comparing something that Peter already did earlier in the book, showing Theophilus that Paul is just as legitimate as Peter. Peter is jailed and miraculously freed in the first part of the book. Hey, that's what happens to Paul in the second part of the book. So Theophilus, you don't have to doubt That because you're a Gentile reached by Paul, that somehow your Christianity is not as important. Paul is just as legitimate as Peter. Because Paul repeats what the very things that Peter did earlier in the book under the inspiration of the Spirit. Another theme of the book is the universality of the Gospel. Luke 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's why Jesus is ministering to Gentiles in the Gospel of Luke. Women who were treated as second-class citizens. Do you realize that women supported Christ's earthly ministry? And all these people say the Bible demotes women. Jesus has done more to elevate women than any other historical figure that's ever lived. And as you read the Gospel of Luke, you see women being elevated, Gentiles being elevated, Romans being elevated. And so Jesus in the book of Acts is continuing that same ministry through the church. That's why it'll, even in Acts chapter 1... As the church is in prayer, it mentions the women being there in prayer as well. The book of Acts is a book of transitions, and this is very important. There's a historical transition from gospels to epistles. What are the epistles? The epistles are not the wives of the apostles, the epistles are the letters. And they sure read differently than the Gospels. So how in the world do we get from Gospel to Epistle? Acts is the bridge that connects you. There's a transition from Judaism to Christianity. Um, You read the Gospels, it's all about Judaism. You get into the Epistles and it's all about Christianity. Well, what happened? What's the bridge between Judaism and Christianity? The book of Acts tells you. There's a transition from law to grace. Jesus' whole ministry took place under the law. In fact, Galatians 4 verse 4 says He was born under the law. Jesus was the last figure of the prior age of the law. Well, how in the world do we go from the law to the church age? The book of Acts explains it. See, if you didn't have the book of Acts in the Bible, you couldn't explain any of these transitions. Who are the people of God? Well, you end with the Gospels, and it's the Jews. But look at us here in the 21st century, predominantly Gentile. Well, what happened? How do we bridge from the people of God being Jews? And I'm not saying an individual Jew Doesn't get saved today, many do. But the dominant composition of the church is Gentile. How in the world did that happen? The book of Acts is the historical bridge that explains it. There's a a transition in the program of God. You go through the Gospel of Luke, and it's all about the kingdom. Dr. Toussaint here says... It is difficult to explain why Luke does not use the term if the kingdom is being inaugurated in Acts 2. He employs it 45 times in the gospel. One would expect Luke to use such a word if such a startling thing as the inauguration of the kingdom had taken place. The fact that Luke uses kingdom only eight times in Acts... After such a heavy usage in the gospel implies that the kingdom had not begun but was in fact postponed. I mean, you go through the gospel of Luke and it's kingdom, 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 kingdom. Because the kingdom offers on the table for Israel. They could have had the kingdom because the king was present. You shift into the book of Acts and the same word kingdom, the Greek word basileia, is not used 45 times. It's used just eight times. And most of those references refer to the kingdom yet future. And you get into the epistles and when it men- they mention the kingdom, it puts the kingdom yet future. So how do we go from a situation where the kingdom is being offered and is mentioned 45 times to the time period that we're living in now where the kingdom is in postponement. You would have no explanation for that if you did not have the book of Acts uh, which is transitional. And there's a leadership change from Christ, who was the leader of the apostles, to the book of Acts, where the apostles are the leaders. To today, where local churches are not being governed by apostles, they're being governed by elders and deacons. Well, how do we move in that? How did that leadership change occur? You would have no knowledge of the bridge between the two if you didn't have the book of Acts in the Bible. So the book of Acts is heavily, heavily transitional. Transitional. And because it is transitional, it contains within it material that is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Descriptive is describing what happens. Prescriptive is describing what we're supposed to do by way of divine commands. So there are all kinds of things happening in the Book of Acts that do not happen today. For example, in the book of Acts there will be a man who will receive the who will believe in Christ for salvation uh, the Samaritans and Simon primarily the Samaritans in Acts 8, they will believe in Christ for salvation, but they don't get the Holy Spirit until later. They don't get the Holy Spirit until the Jerusalem leadership lays hands on the Samaritans. Believe in one instant, and later on you get the Spirit. That's not what's normal today. Paul says if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. Once you believe in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit immediately. So the book of Acts, chapter 8, is describing something that's not normative today. There are all kinds of things happening in the book of Acts that we don't practice today. For example, you know, all these people are saying, let's get back to the book of Acts. Okay, well, I say, well, do you own a house? Because you you should have sold your house. Because that's what they did in Acts 2. They sold their home so that they would have money on hand to share with out-of-towners so that they could learn from the apostles. So that would be another example of something happening in Acts that's not normative today. So this is probably the major point of disagreement between our theology here at Sugarland Bible Church versus much of what you hear about in the contemporary charismatic movement. They, the difference of perspective relates to the treatment of the book of Acts. They will treat the book of Acts as if the things happening in the book of Acts are still happening today we have a different perspective on it. We see the book of Acts as transitional. It's a transitional book. So some of the things happening in the book are not happening today because the book of Acts is describing things that happened during this transitional period without prescribing things for the church. And we treat the book of Acts not so much as a doctrinal book but a historical book in other words if you're going to argue that such and such a practice has to happen in the church today you can't build your case exclusively from the book of acts because of its transitional nature you have to also find it in the epistolary literature Should we practice communion today? Yes, because we see it in Acts and we see it in the epistles. Should we tell people you get saved first and you get the Holy Spirit later? No, because although I see that in Acts, it's not in the epistles. So the major difference that we would have with the charismatic movement relates to an understanding of the transitional nature of the book of Acts. That's why as we move through this, I'm going to recommend to you this book by Dwight Pentecost. It's the last book he wrote prior to his death. And with a name like that, he's certainly qualified to comment on Pentecost, I guess. It's called New Wine, A Study of Transition in the Book of Acts. It will surface all these transitional issues that we see in the book of Acts, but we're not going to argue or is normative today. So more on that as we progress. The book of Acts is very big on the sovereignty of God. Acts 2.23 says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross. So who killed Jesus? Jesus the Jews, or the predetermined plan of God? The answer is yes, because God is sovereign. He used their rebellion to advance his purpose. Acts 13.48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed. Well, did they believe because they were appointed? Or were they appointed because they believed? The answer is yes. Because God is sovereign. Sovereign. So, Theophilus, you have to understand that the gospel got to you through the sovereign actions of God. So you are contemplated in the mind of God, Theophilus. The book of Acts is very big on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. How do we share the gospel with people? Well, the book of Acts tells you, and this is repeated in the epistles. It says in Acts 16, 30 and 31, after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, repent of all your sins and walk an aisle and fill out a card. No, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The simplicity of the gospel. Acts fifteen eleven, but we believed that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they also are. So you Gentiles are saved the same way us Jews were at the beginning, and it's always by faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone. So as we move through it, you're going to see a lot in here about the clarity of the gospel, how to share the gospel what should be left out of gospel presentations because they're not biblical. Most gospel presentations tell people you're saved by grace. Now here's three works you need to do. That's self-contradictory. You're either saved by faith alone or you're not. And a lot of the jargon that's inserted into modern-day gospel presentations you will not find in the book of Acts. In, in fact, you won't even find an altar call in the Book of Acts. Well, I'm going out on a limb here, aren't I? And here's the last point to consider: unique characteristics. What if you didn't have Acts? What would you not have in the Bible? What makes the Book of Acts unique? One of the things that makes it unique is sermons. There are twenty. Three sermons in the book of Acts. And one of my favorite verses is in Acts 15, where it says, The apostles comforted the church with a lengthy message. And I say amen to that. There are 23 sermons, four preached by Peter, six preached by Paul, one preached by James, a long one preached by Stephen. Who was a deacon? And one of the things that unfortunately we've done here at Sugarland Bible Church is we've lowered the significance of deacons by making them feel like it's like a janitorial entry level job. You know, you're supposed to take care of the plant. Not understanding that one of the most theologically rich sermons preached in the whole Bible. That spans over 50 verses is preached by Stephen who weaves together all of this Old Testament material masterfully and Stephen was the first deacon appointed in the church. So becoming a deacon is a little bit more than, alright, you know, make sure the toilets are scrubbed and, you know, that kind of thing. The book of Acts is known for its miracles brought forth by the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is the background for Paul's letters. Paul wrote 13 letters. And we can take those 13 letters and we can put them into an exact order. We can tell you which missionary journey Paul was on when he wrote each letter, at least for the first 10 letters. And if I didn't have the book of Acts, I couldn't put a chart together like this because the book of Acts is the background for Paul's letters. It's sort of like how the book of Kings and the prophets work together in the Old Testament. The books of 1st and 2nd Kings give you the historical background for the writing prophets that we have. You can put them into a historical framework. You can organize them chronologically, but you couldn't do that without 1st and 2nd Kings. It's the same way with Paul's letters. You cannot assemble Paul's letters and give the background for each letter without the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book that gives accurate history. Sir William Ramsay, a great archaeologist from a prior era, said, I had read a good deal of modern criticism about the book and dutifully accepted the current opinion that it was written during the second half of the second century by an author who wished to influence the minds of people in his own time by a highly wrought and imaginative description of the early church. His object was not to present a trustworthy picture of facts in the period of about A.D. 50, but to produce a certain effect on his own time. By setting forth a carefully colored account of events and persons of that older period, he wrote for contemporaries, not the truth. That's what Ramsey thought the book of Acts was about when he first started studying it. He thought it was fiction. It was written long after the fact and made up. Then he started looking into it. Are these places and people historical? So Ramsey had a conversion. He says the present writer takes the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. At this point, we are describing what reasons and arguments change the mind of one who began under the impression that history was written long after the events and that it was untrustworthy as a whole. Ramsey, following contemporary liberal scholarship, says the book is just fiction and it's made up, until he started looking into the history that it talks about, and he converted. So we're dealing here with accurate history. The book is very big on places and names. 20, um, eighty places are mentioned. A hundred names are given because Luke is documenting the progress of the church geographically. So obviously he's going to mention all of these places and names. Places and names that are so accurate that it caused a liberal like Ramsey to convert into believing the trustworthiness of the book. The book is unique because of its massive volume. If you were to take Luke and Acts together, it represents over a quarter of the New Testament. 27% of the New Testament was written by Dr. Luke, if you factor in his prequel of the book of, the book of Luke and the sequel of the book of Acts. And then the last thing that's unique about it is this is the only book of the Bible written by a Gentile to a specific Gentile, Theophilus. I don't know of any other book that has both of those things going for it. So I went a little long tonight. I apologize for that. But those are the best I can do. Fourteen background issues to understand the book, and um, we're going to start the book uh, verse by verse uh, next time. So since we went a little long, I'm just going to bypass Q&A for tonight, if that's okay. And then we'll, we'll pick it up in Acts 1 next time. So in preparation, just read the first chapter of the book of Acts for next week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the book of Acts, what it reveals, discloses, and the importance of the book. Help us to appreciate it. But I do pray, Lord, that we would not just go through the book of Acts, but the book of Acts would go through us as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. And God's people said,